0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zine. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to a TVO podcast.
2: Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm your host, Colin Ellis, and thanks for joining me for this very special episode on this year's Academy Awards. We're not talking about the race for Best Picture, Actor, or Sound Editing. We're talking about, what else, the Best Documentary Feature. And joining me for that is TVO's Executive Producer for Documentaries, Jang Jankovic.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy with all these five films that were nominated, frankly. Like, there isn't... Any one of them where I thought, well, how did that get in you? I mean, there's usually <laughs> one of those on the on the list.
2: And later, I'll be speaking with Sammy Kahn, a documentary filmmaker who co-directed the Oscar-nominated short doc, St. Louis Superman, which looks at the life of activist and rapper Bruce Franks.
0: He wanted to translate what people in his community were looking for. They were looking for actual change, not like sweeping overall change, but like practical things, like why this police officer killed this young African-American man, boy, and let's have some accountability. But first up, here's Jane and I discussing the five nominees for
2: Best Documentary Feature. Stay with us. Well, Jane Jankovic, thank you so much for joining us at OnDocs today. Oh,
1: it's great to be here. Your first ever podcast. Indeed it is. It is. So I always like new experiences.
2: Um, So I was looking at your IMDb page, and you've got producer credits on about
1: Fourteen TVO documentaries. Oh well, you know what? I actually don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know who does that on the page, but I haven't been very good about going on there, if at all, frankly. So no, I have. Uh, we've probably done. Well, we've commissioned hundreds of documentaries, frankly, since I've been doing it since two thousand and seven. So. Oh wow. um, Yeah, and it's as commissioning editor, uh, not as necessarily as a producer. How'd you get into docs? Well, I was actually in Current Affairs uh, Daily Programming. I was a senior producer of a show at TVO called Studio 2. And when that show transitioned into the agenda, there also was um, opening in the commissioning editor role. And uh, TVO asked me if I was interested. And... um, uh, Took a go at it, and I guess they were happy, and I've been doing it ever since. And it's been—I pinch myself every day. It's a fantastic gig.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know your stuff about documentaries, so that's why we wanted to talk to you about the Oscar documentary Always features.
1: An interesting conversation. For
2: sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wondered what jumped out at you about this year's nominees, and we'll get into uh, the five of them. But uh, what, what stood out for you?
1: Well, I think um, overall, the surprises for me was that they were mostly foreign films. I mean, all five films have subtitles. There's only one that has English in it and only one that takes place in America, which is American Factory. And that's really unusual. If you look over the history of the nominees in that category, it tends to be predominantly American films with maybe one or two foreign films. Um, It's also a slate of very political films, which is not unusual for documentary, but um, is a little bit unusual for the Oscars because they usually like to put in some culture-related films as well. So um, it's an interesting slate. And to have two films about um, Syria was also a surprise to me. So those were the things that really jumped out at me.
2: Was there anything that wasn't nominated last from last year that you think should have been?
1: Um, you know, I'm so happy with all these five films that were nominated, frankly. like There isn't any one of them where I thought, well, how did that get in? you? Know, when there's usually <laughs> one of those on the on the list. Um, as I said, I thought there were just some American culture films that might have uh, might have made the list, um not necessarily because they were the best films, but because it looked at um, topics that were in the zeitgeist, you know, like the big hack or or fire, you know the F Y R E. So, um, you know, leaving Neverland, etc. I thought maybe something like that yeah. would be on the list, uh, but I think these are all very strong contenders.
2: I thought Apollo Eleven for sure. That ah. seemed to get and and you know this isn't the first time. Like I noticed this the year before we when we did this uh, podcast about the Oscars last year, there were some glaring uh, snubs like uh, um, the Mister Rogers documentary. Uh, welcome, not welcome. Oh to yeah, you. yeah. Um, won't you be my neighbor? That's, That's what I was. That's it. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the three identical strangers were both, like, uh, snubbed. So um, I, is that kind of a, a um typical?
1: I was surprised by that because those, again, I would consider those to be quite... Even though they were had a lot of strong issues in there, they got a lot of exposure, a lot of play. Um, they were very strong American stories. Um, so I was surprised that uh, one of those two... Didn't get it. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, something I noticed with the the documentary category versus other categories of the Oscars is that uh, there's a lot more diversity in the mm-hmm. uh, ca- in the documentary category, and that's always the criticism of the Oscars is it's you know there was hashtag Oscars so white. Mm-hmm. Is that is that kind of um, I guess normal uh, to see like more women, more people of color in, in documentary?
1: Uh, I don't like know that. if it's normal. There's a greater awareness of it, and I well, and, and I think in fairness there are. Uh, There are a lot of financing scenarios that are encouraging uh, uh, diversity in films, both in terms of topics, but about the filmmakers. I think it's really critical to be able to encourage filmmakers who have diverse backgrounds, whether it's, you know, Gender, color, religion, faith, political stripe, etc. Um, so, I think we're seeing more of that because there are some funding models that are specific to encouraging those types of stories and storytellers to to um, come onto the scene.
2: Well, let's 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 talk about the five. And the first one we're going to discuss is called American Factory. It's directed by Steven Bogner and Julia Reichert. Uh, it's uh, produced by the Obamas' uh, production company. And uh, I'll just read a little brief synopsis. In post-industrial Ohio, a Chinese billionaire opens a new factory in the husk of an abandoned General Motors plant. Early days of hope and optimism give way to setbacks as high-tech China clashes with working-class America. And this is the film that you mentioned uh, off the top that uh, is... Uh, set in America but there's a lot of uh, Chinese uh, and uh, English subtitles because there's Chinese people speaking in it Mm -hmm. so um, this seems like the front runner to me Uh, it's like I said it's the only film set in the US it's got the Obamas behind it Uh, pretty straightforward looking at at the state of the working class in America what did you think?
1: I liked this film um, a lot, and I think this will really appeal to the Academy who are voting um, and, uh, and of course, to Americans in in general. It really is taking this whole period of time, uh, which continues, of parts of America that, um, you know, are suffering because of lack of manufacturing jobs. And here's this GM automotive glass plant that closed down, I think, in 2011, 2012. Chinese company comes in, um, they uh, renovate it, they rehire, and... um, The point, of course, is to make it profitable. Uh, They can only do that, however, if the working culture is more like the Chinese working culture as opposed to the American working culture. And therein lies the drama. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the conflict. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of predictable in that you see these two uh, philosophies around how you treat workers and how you measure productivity, and they clash throughout the film. And uh, sort of no surprise that it leads to um, a union drive. The United Auto Workers come in, they Um, you know, try to secure better conditions and pay for the workers. And, you know, in fairness to the workers, they went from $29 an hour jobs when it was GM down to $12 an hour jobs. Uh, And they're working side by side with Chinese workers that were brought in, who are working 12 hour days and working through the weekends, and they're constantly being compared to that kind of dedication. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also, um, I mean, there's the Chinese managers are constantly in various types of training about how to quote, manage the Americans, <laughs> yes. which
2: is really... Yeah, they basically call them lazy, and, yeah,
1: lazy. Yeah, lazy, lazy. I mean, at one point, um, they're talking about, well, you know, these Americans, They since they're babies, they've they're always been told everything's great and they're confident, and they grow up then to be yeah. very overconfident. And they have this, uh, he has this one quote, he said, you know, this is how we have to treat them. Donkeys like being touched in the direction their hair grows. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, they will kick. Yes, and... Uh, they, they really see the, the American workers as inferior. The Chinese have to bring their wisdom and guidance um, in order to you know train them and yeah. make them better.
2: Well, I, I love the scene where they they go to when they go to China and uh, they yeah. bring some of the workers there with them, the American workers, and show them these uh, videos and like performances. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of those kind of old communist propaganda videos yeah. that you would see. Like, uh, and I just thought that was like a very interesting clash of cultures, Mm because I guess when the Americans, you know, when they were trying to show uh, the Chinese kind of like their way of life, it was like shooting guns. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was kind of like harking back to these very stereotypical (laughs) notions of both like America and China. So I thought that was really interesting.
1: Well, they play out in there, that's for sure. And it does sort of lead to a a climax. And, uh, you know, overall, it's a a good film. I really enjoyed watching it.
2: It is very solid. And uh, I mean, I think, it's interesting, though, when I watched the um, um, Obamas talk to the directors about the making of it, they didn't really talk about the union stuff. They really mm. kind of mo- were more interested in the – I guess the, the – like telling people's stories. Like they liked the storytelling mm-hmm. aspect, but they completely ignored the sort of – you know, what kind of brought <laughs> – like the conditions that led to yeah, like, the factory being yeah, and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that was – that was uh, – American Factory, and uh, we're going to go right to the next one called The Edge of Democracy, directed by Petra Costa, uh, also on Netflix. And it follows the political and personal past of the filmmaker in the context of President Lula da Silva's presidency, as well as impeachment of his successor Dilma Rousseff, analyzing the rise and fall of both presidents as the socio-political crisis that swept the country. Yeah. This is a really... De- like there's a lot of stuff in this film mm-hmm. like it's very complex it's very detailed a lot of details um, just like going through the history of Brazil's political past from I guess like the military dictatorship up until uh, the impeachment and then uh, incarceration of uh, uh, Lula da Silva and um, it's got a lot of interesting parallels to America I think right now what, what did you think of it? Uh,
1: this film is, um, is going to be especially interesting for for some people for two reasons. A, because, you know, we have this kind of impeachment process, of course, it's going on through the states, and the kind of bizarre political um, uh, tactics that are being used, maybe not quite bizarre, but you know. um, But it is, I tell you, nothing compared to the stuff that's going on in Brazil during this period. This is a really dense film. However, it, it teases apart and untangles all those headlines that we read while this was happening in the last uh, several years and gives you a much better understanding of how the Congress works, the dysfunction of the the systemic dysfunction within the government and how um, people, both politicians and the populace, can get riled up to a really feverish pitch and make decisions not based on facts but you know, based on the temper of temperature of the times so it's um it, it's a little dense but i really think it really clarified a lot of things for me and kangaroo court doesn't even begin to describe their impeachment process. And um, and it's really it's shocking. You know, we have a leader, Lula, President Lula, who had two terms. He was the first non-military supported president um, to get into office. He did start making some deals with the right-wing president because he didn't have a majority in Congress, etc. But still, after two terms, he left office at an 87% per- approval rate. His successor, Dilma, um, is also you know, high in the polls. Everybody's still supportive of the, of the Workers' Party. And then she takes on the banks. <laughs> and then the economy tanks. Yeah. Everything changes when the economy tanks. Then she tries to distract the economy issue by bringing in an anti-corruption investigation. Problem is, there were some corruption um, that was going on within her own party uh, in terms of bribes, et etc, that were taken, and this just totally opened up the crack for the uh, the right wing uh, government to come in and stir things up on their road to reseizing power in Brazil, which is what ultimately happens so this film is a, a really one great opportunity to understand how that happened um, and this you know particular period in time
2: well, it seemed like even though they're uh Their hands weren't exactly... Lou's hands weren't exactly clean. I mean, he did, uh, I think, uh, accept an apartment. Although, I I would...
1: no, they never had proof of that. Yeah. They never had proof of that. So he ends up in jail. He's in jail for like 10 years or something. Right. And Diliao got um, uh, impeached. But they never had proof of that. So, I mean, he may well have. Who knows? I I don't know. I
2: think think the film is trying to show that we just don't really know. And the the evidence wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But there were things that the other side was doing, the other political Mm -hmm. party was doing that was like... Just as bad, and there was no investigation of them. So I think well, it was no just showing. There's, yeah, there's definitely hypocrisy, and definitely the uh, the party that's in the you know pockets of like the like the oil executives is the one that really runs the show. Okay, that's Edge of Democracy. We got to move on because uh, there's three other films to talk yeah. about. So this next film is getting a lot of Oscar buzz. It's Honeyland by Tamara Koteska and Lubomir Stefanov, and basically it's about a woman who utilizes an ancient beekeeping tradition to cultivate honey in the mountains of Macedonia. When a neighboring family tries to do the same, it becomes a source of tension as they disregard her wisdom and advice. I, I like this film. I didn't think I, did I would, too. but it I was did too. really a, <laughs> a, a, an interesting look at a culture I'd never heard anything about. Yeah, and there was no narration. There was no trying, no talking head interviews. It was a very fly on the wall approach, uh-huh. and I just Thought it was wow. What like who who would have
1: heard of this? I loved before? Honeyland. Yeah, yeah, loved it. These are like among my favorite films. Um, these stories about outliers um, who really don't fit the stereotype that you may have of an outlier. I mean, here's this woman. She lives with her mother. They're arguing all the time, but you know, in a village where no one's there, it's totally abandoned except for their hut. <laughs> they, there's no electricity. There's no water. Nothing. Um, and then, as you say, this this really dysfunctional family moves in next door and just wreaks havoc on her life. And yet, uh, the beekeeper is, um, uh, you know, she's, she's not what you think. I mean, it's not like she's antisocial. She's very social. It's not like she's a shrinking flower. No, when she takes her honey into the market, she's bartering. She's yeah. tough. But she still chooses to be there. Um, but this family comes in, and you just it's like if you if you didn't see it you wouldn't believe how dysfunctional this family is you know yeah. in terms of their relationships with each other um, and it's a quiet film um, that has enough action to keep you going you really care about this woman and you really care about her beehives and, uh, <laughs> and it just oh man yeah, yeah. And I don't want to say too much more about it in, in case I mean in terms of the storyline yeah but um, yeah it's really a beautiful film it's it's we're seeing and yeah. you know it comes from Macedonia, which is you know again that whole Eastern Europe um, um, arm I suppose of filmmaking that is really um, getting traction
2: yeah well, and it's not real like I mean politics doesn't really enter the conversation no. um, it really is just sort of like a very i guess micro examination of like a different culture that uh, you know I, mean, I I'm very curious actually to know how these directors. Found, about, found out about this woman, how much time they yeah, spent with her. It was yeah. a lot of questions that I had, actually, when I was leaving. One yeah. thing that I noticed, though, that's very interesting is that it's actually the first doc that's been nominated uh, as international film as well.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah. So it's, it's submitted in categories. I don't think it will win in either, to be honest. But uh, yeah, we can talk about so. that at the end. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, so, and, and actually, and no doc has ever been nominated for Best Picture either which I think is very interesting. Oh. Yeah. There's not been one in, I guess, 90-something oh, years. Oh, yeah. Mm. So I don't know if that doesn't will ever doesn't surprise
1: happen. me, I suppose, but yeah. you know, when you have the whole Hollywood machine there. But yeah. Um, uh yeah, interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, we should move on to the last two because they're they're both very similar. Uh, they're called uh, The Cave and Forsama. The Cave is directed by Ferris Fayad and Forsama is directed by Wad Al-Katiab and Edward Watts. Uh Cave is looking at a group of female doctors who work in an underground complex treating civilian casualties in the war in Syria and the women are also dealing with sexism from their male colleagues as well as the stresses of being under siege. And for Sama, it is also set in Syria. Uh, it's the director Wad al-Katyab's story told through five years of the uprising in Aleppo, Syria. She falls in love. She has gets married. She gives birth to a child whose name Sama, who this film is for. And all of this is happening while, you know, this cataclysmic uh, conflict is going around. And I just thought, uh, very intense film. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's capturing footage of, Uh, people being brought into the hospital, children, you know, being killed. it's just, it's awful. Like, Mm -hmm. just what's going on. Uh, Mm -hmm. What did you think?
1: Um, I I loved them both. I mean, they are challenging to watch uh, because you do see so much horror and destruction. uh, And and, um, you have children bringing in other children, you know, into um, hospitals. Because even in Forsama, her husband is a doctor, so there's a lot of hospital setting in that film as well. Um, Yeah, I I loved it. I loved it because it's, um, it's, it's. Re- I hope that people who are, whose eyes are glaze over whenever a Syrian story comes up in the media or on their news feeds or whatever, or who have developed a cynicism about the migrants that are leaving Syria uh, and the impact of that on their own communities, this is these two stories are about the people who chose to stay behind, mm-hmm. and they stayed behind because you know maybe it's called complex I don't know but they stayed behind because they felt they had a role to play in influencing. Um, how the ward was going to have an impact on their community. Mm. Um, and they're there because they think they can bring skills and they can tell the story that's going to help that community. Uh, and that perspective is is fairly fresh, you know, compared to the many Syrian documentaries that have been made around there. Um, boy, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: well, it's funny because we think I think sometimes we get a sense that like our situation is hopeless given the polarization that we mm-hmm. uh, experience, uh, in I guess in Canada and the U.S. as well. But um, I felt like you know they're in a, in a, a completely hopeless situation. Yeah. They're under siege, like there's like constant bombings, like it's just it's a horror show. And yet they continue to stay. They continue yeah. to do the work. Yeah. Like they're 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 trying to you know I guess maintain a sense of dignity. I mean, you see them like. Uh, celebrate birthdays, you know, cook cook with each other. Like, there's still, like, uh, elements of them being human even though they're in this god-awful situation. And I just thought that was really moving.
1: Yeah. I I think that for... I I totally agree. I think for Sama, if we take that one um, just for a bit, that one in in particular, but The Cave was super powerful for other reasons. I'll get into that. Uh, For Sama is a first-person POV point of view from the filmmaker. And as you say, she makes this film for her daughter because... You know, she starts to question herself, or and she tries to rationalize for herself and her daughter, like, why did I get pregnant and have you in a war zone? I am raising you in a war zone. Um, and for Sama, what's chilling about it is that it shows the normalization of war. So there are scenes, for instance, where the father is in the ER that he has made, you know, set up in some abandoned building or whatever – and uh, the filmmaker says, well, she hasn't seen her dad in a while, so I took her into work to um, show her dad. And her dad has Sama on his lap, and they're right beside a kid that they tried to save and is now dead. There's a little boy on a stretcher right beside him, and the stretcher's dead. And Sama's on her, his lap, and she's just playing with her toys and looking around. like She doesn't yeah. see anything abnormal in that. And then there's another scene later where a young boy says to one of the other um, um, fathers in the film, uh, he he says, oh, you know, Daddy, tell me a story. No, it's a girl, actually. Daddy, tell me a story. He says, okay, which one do you want to hear? The one about the boy? Yeah, yeah, tell me the one about the boy. The story about the boy is about a boy who hears the warplanes coming. He runs out to the balcony. A bomb drops and kills him and his entire family. And the moral of the story is when you hear a war play, you run to the basement. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they, that's, not a, that's not the three bears. Yeah. But to them, that was a great story. Yeah, thanks, Daddy. You know, yeah. So,
2: <laughs> this is their childhood. This is
1: their childhood.
2: It's awful.
1: And, uh, you know, the cave is – the cave is um, – Ooh, I, again in both films you're constantly hearing the Russian warplanes yeah. dropping bombs. They're being carpet bombed. They're just like you're hearing all of that. And these filmmakers, like the embedded film team yeah. that's in the cave, holy I don't how they stayed there, I admire them because it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. There's one scene in there, sorry, I just there because there's certain things that just stand out. You know, Dr. Amani, the main female character that um, you referred to, they're you know, there's incoming, incoming, all these people are coming in. And they're coming in through these underground tunnels that have been built under the city so that they can get some sort of safe passage to the basement of this hospital, which is the only part of it that's still operating. And at one point, the camera just happens to be there, at one point, she just stops and looks at the, the person that just died in front, of, in front of them. And she steps back and she said, something's wrong here. These people are all dying and they're not wounded. And then right, yes. Somebody says, "Is that chlorine?" Yeah. You know, and they realize they've just had a chemical attack yeah. which sh- shifts the whole hospital or that whole sort of clinic scene into overdrive. Yeah. Um and there there are like chilling moments in that in both films that are very memorable and it really like, I would have hightailed out of there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I look at those people and I think, I don't know what makes you tick, but I'm just going to keep watching because I, I need to find out because thank God for people like you. Yeah. Um, Real but, heroes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Again, you know, I think they're not even really sure what their motivation is, but they just feel like they can't leave. They can't abandon this place, yeah. they which they hope and pray will convert back to a place where they can they can raise their families. So uh,
2: Well, hopefully. I mean, I think it's good that this film is at least, uh, you know... Whatever happens with the, the war in Syria, how whatever it ever resolves, we have this documentation yeah. that these people yes. were there and yeah. doing
1: that kind of. Work. And there, and it's you know, d- even though we're talking about how heavy it is and it is somewhat challenging, it actually is also extremely inspiring. Yeah, you know, it's just ooh, you you sort of search yourself to do. I say, do I have a piece of that? You know, would I be able to <laughs> like stay behind? And because I felt that I had there was some way in which I could influence. Uh, this this community or how it's surviving through this, it's it's very very inspiring too. Very
2: well, I think we got to wrap up, but we should probably uh, award one of these films or or say which one we think will win uh, and which one should win. So, which uh, film do you think should should win?
1: Should win? Yeah. Uh well, should win. Oh, this is hard. It's hard. I, you know, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna say probably one of the two Syrian films. Yeah. Um, and you know, for Sama got. Tons of festival play. So of the two that might be in the running as potential for a win, I think Forsama would probably get more votes than Mm -hmm. The Cave. The Cave is a much bigger, higher production um, project. Osama is a little more grassroots, you know. um, But I would would hope that one of those two would win, although I loved Honeyland. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think American Factory is probably the one that's going to come through because it's just much more accessible. And, you know, the bulk of the Academy is American and um, it's a real American story. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I would probably say that American Factory is going to win. I think that that is the clear front runner. Um, So Obama gets an Oscar.
1: Oh, oh yeah. I forgot about that. Of course. Actually,
2: I don't know if he would get it. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I think I do think that's going to win in terms of what I would want to win. Honestly, any of these could win, and I'd be very happy. Yeah. I would say, I think, I think Honeyland. It, it has. I have a sweet spot for I it. I do too. I'm Sorry oh, about. I'm, oh, I know. Ha, ha, ha. I'm, I'm sorry about <laughs> the puns. I just can't resist. No, uh, no, I do have a sweet spot for that one because I just think it was. Uh, it was telling me something I didn't know before. Uh, I liked Edge of Democracy a lot because like, I, I gave it provided a lot of details about yeah. Brazil, which I always. I'm kind of interested in. Um, and I think, you know, I, American Factory I, I liked, but I think it's sort of a story I kind of already know a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's predictable. And so, and I think the cave in Forsama um, – different stories but kind of about the same event and I
1: and I the kind same of, approach and
2: same approach and so I kind of get them mixed up in my head mm-hmm. a little bit mm-hmm. uh, so I just, that's why I think Honeyland is the most unique and original mm-hmm. so that's my vote
1: it stands out yeah. oh good for you you're, you're going out on a limb I'm, I'm
2: going out I won't on my Oscar ballot I will not put Honeyland okay. I will put American right. Factory because right. I vote strategically Yes, <laughs> but uh, that is the one I would like to win yeah yeah. well Jane thank you so much for joining us today that
1: this was, was great. it was fun, thank fun. You. great good thank you
2: thank you and now let's pivot from talking about the nominees to talking with a nominee. Here's my conversation with Sammy Kahn about his short doc, St. Louis Superman. Well, Sammy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. Uh, let's, we got to start with the Oscars first. Uh, where were you when you heard that you were nominated?
0: <laughs> we were sitting on our uh, our couch. And my uh, wife was beside me and our two-year-old daughter, who had no idea what was happening. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, I actually had to convince my wife to go into work a little bit late. Um, And she works not far from where we're recording this interview. But uh, I was like, I don't know. This might not come another time in my life, you know. You might want to just be here for that. She was like, oh, fine, okay. And then, of course, you know, we were overjoyed um so what have the last couple of weeks been like for you then uh totally surreal i mean it's a really shock the first couple days and then you're just hit with this torrent of just like logistical things that you need to figure out because it's so soon this year there's such a short period of time between the nominations and uh the ceremony on february 9th so it's like delivering the film it's like getting all the stakeholders you know to sign off on everything you know there's events you have to figure out so that was like a huge pressure and then there's the the burden of uh tickets mm-hmm. getting securing tickets for these important people who are have been supporting the film and funding the film and for whatever reason that falls upon the filmmakers and falls upon my shoulders because my partner was in Sierra Leone shooting. Hmm. So it's uh, it's quite something to have <laughs> the senior executives of multinational corporations depending on you to get them tickets for the Oscars. Wow.
2: Well, let's let's talk about the film. Uh, how did you hear about Bruce Franks?
0: So uh, we were actually commissioned to make a documentary, um, which is, you know, we're really fortunate um, being independent filmmakers, you know, places like TVO that commissioned documentaries. But, you know outside of Ontario, there's not really that many opportunities. So we were approached by AJ Witness to make a documentary about the 2018 midterms. Um, And, you know, we were searching around for ideas. And a lot of the ideas, they felt like they'd be really dated, you know, when Trump left office or when, you know, the next election came around. But uh, Smriti Mundra, my incredibly talented co-director on the project, she found Bruce's story. Uh, I think in an article in the Riverfront Times, the sort of uh, alt weekly of St. Louis, and li- the article laid out Bruce's story. And you know, Poe, uh, the producer, and myself, we we just you know we leapt at the at the opportunity to tell Bruce's story because it wasn't just a political story. You know, it it wasn't just a story about growing up in St. Louis. It wasn't just like a story about activism and, you know, trying to end uh, police violence. It, it was all of those things. And, um, and then, you know, for those who've seen the film or will see the film, one of the most important things, it's a relationship between a father and a son. And, uh, you know, you could see those, you could see the inkling of them in that article. Um, and so... That that's where that's where the, the the genesis of the project came from. So he was
2: an activist who then went into state politics, correct?
0: So, what happened was, you know, Bruce was was born in forty three hundred block of Gibson, and when he was a young boy, he lost his brother to gun violence, um, and you know, he Bruce has always been sort of exceptional student uh, and uh, just really bright storyteller, even from a young age. So in high school, he was able to, you know, move on and overcome, if you can, I don't know if that's the right word, but sort of move on from his brother's death. Um, But then when he was in his 20s and early 30s, he was just a a rapper, a battle rapper and sort of a community leader. He wasn't political. What changed was in 2014, when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, um, something was activated and Bruce, and all of these sort of threads of his life came together. And Bruce was was instrumental in the protests uh, against police violence in the St. Louis area, you know, that were instigated by um, Michael Brown's death in Ferguson. So Bruce was down there for 400 days, something like 400 days every day um, protesting in Ferguson and parts of St. Louis. Um, and then he was getting asked you know, to run for political office because, you know, like Toronto, like cities across the world, they sort of get these entrenched political candidates who just stay there. And, you know, maybe they come in with promise, but then, you know, abandon the community. So he took on a kind of entrenched, corrupt uh, political dynasty and defeated them in 2016 um, and, uh, our story picks up with him in, in 2018, in the summer of 2018, when he's trying to get a bill passed to honor his late brother and get funds diverted to, uh, you know, declare, uh, youth violence, gun violence, a, a public health emergency.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that he chose the, to go in the to politics. I, I feel like some activists are a little weary of politicians and, and using that as the path to achieve social change. So I wonder what, I guess, what made him different?
0: I think it was the people pushing him to do it, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it, it was like, this is, this is before AOC and this is bef- before Elon Omar, you know, is it, this is, uh, Bruce was kind of like this first wave of, um, you know, the same year that Bernie ran for the democratic nomination. And I think that probably, that probably helped too, you know, cause they're not completely aligned politically, but Bernie and Bruce share some political philosophy, mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that that helped. It's like, okay, this is a thing that's like that's possible. And then, you know, he wanted to translate on a practical level. He wanted to translate what people in his community were looking for. They were looking for actual change, not like sweeping overall change, but like practical things like uh, let's get an investigation into what happened, why, you know, why this police officer killed this young African-American man boy um and let's have some accountability so like really practical uh things and bruce had relationships too with people on both sides with with police too and certainly in the political system but he was like uniquely placed to kind of uh affect change
2: he's also a lot different i mean you mentioned the the other uh, i guess the legislatures are a little le- legislators are a little bit more uh entrenched, um, and he's, he's I guess, like, I, I watched the scene of him, like, speaking before, uh, I guess, the Senate. And he's very soft-spoken. He also doesn't dress in, like, a suit and tie like the rest of them. Um, do you think, how, I guess, how does that, like, either help or hinder him, I guess, in terms of getting his bill passed?
0: Uh, I think it helps because Bruce is always going to tell you what he thinks, you know? He's always going to be who he is. I, I think that's, like... You know, people are really, uh, you know, wary of politicians. And uh, Well, there's an authenticity,
2: authenticity to it, right? Yeah,
0: that's not manufactured. Where you see some political candidates and it's like totally manufactured authenticity. And it's like, oh, this person's authentic, but this person isn't for whatever reason. You know, but Bruce is like, that—that that is who he is. You know, mm-hmm. there's like the person you see in that scene you're describing versus the person who's like, on the battle rap stage versus the person you know I'm Facetiming with last night with my daughter, who's like wants to call Uncle Bruce. It's it's the same guy. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you, yeah, you mentioned he's a battle rapper, and, and you do sh- show him him actually rapping <laughs> against another opponent. Being a state rep and being a battle rapper is the exact same thing.
0: When I get ready for a battle, I don't necessarily pay attention to that particular artist. I pay attention to what that artist might say.
1: It's the same way when you are presenting legislation. You want to know what the folks who oppose, what kind of fight they're going to put up. And you want to be able to nip that in the bud.
0: So being a legislator is the exact same thing as being a battle rapper,
2: only battle rapping pays better. Can you just set that scene up for us? Like, what was that
0: like? Uh, yeah, I mean, so we were really fortunate because one of the, the the sort of the realities of his political career was that his battle rap career really took a hit, and he oh. hadn't he hadn't battle rapped in a, a long time. Um, I think it was like a couple years, um, and uh, so that it was really fortuitous where you know that was like. A battle rap in St. Louis and uh, you know uh, I shot much of the movie but another uh, filmmaker named Chris Renteria shot uh, the other you know third of the movie and Chris shot that scene and just like captured it so so beautifully and you know we can't we can only uh, give you a glimpse of like Bruce's uh, rhetorical skills mm-hmm. and his lyrical skills because um, it's you know A film we have to cut it down but you know bruce is known for uh sort of in his third rounds um going to this deeper emotional level or like philosophical level and just sort of hitting you in the gut with it he they just released uh the the toronto battle rap league just released a rap that uh a battle that bruce did uh up here and it's like the most epic thing. And, you know, Bruce just gets to this deeper level in the, in the third round. And, you know, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, I just like, you know, in awe of how Bruce is able to get to that register in the third act really, you know, because that's what we want. That's what mm-hmm. we want as storytellers to do.
2: Well, I, it's, it's funny. He's, it's not like a eight mile Eminem where he's like saying some profanity and, and destroying his opponent, you know, the way he looks, or talking about his women, or anything like that. I mean, he's he's bringing up politics, which I, I guess I never really had seen before in a, a battle rap, which I thought was really interesting.
0: Yeah, uh, that's Bruce's tact. You yeah. know, there are his some of his opponents like will go after him for, you know, you know. In that case, the the his opponent is going after him for you know having relationships with police and, yeah, and uh, selling out, yeah, yeah, and selling out, yeah. Um, but you know, other people, Bruce's really open about his battles with mental health. And that's a big part of the film Mm. and other opponents have tried to take him down for, for that. But I think what you see in the battle rap community as a rule, you know, not across the board, but like generally they are much more open and loving, you know, even though they'll try and destroy you rhetorically, lyrically, Mm -hmm. they're much more open and loving and supportive when the battle's over than say the, the, the political, uh, machine in St. Louis, or Missouri. I should
2: have probably asked you this earlier, but you mentioned his brother, uh, his death, and I, that his death. I, I just was, can you just talk about what exactly happened because I, I just couldn't believe this story.
0: Yeah, so Bruce uh, grew up in forty three hundred Gibson Block of St. Louis, and one day he was just uh, he was just playing uh, with his brother um, Christopher Harris. Uh, you know, on the front porch, and uh, there were two men who were outside arguing, and the, it just escalated until you know guns were drawn, and one of them picked up Bruce's brother and used him as a human shield, and uh, he was he was killed um, in in the incident, and you know, and, and the men, you know, they faced the justice system, but. You know, again, like to talk about Bruce just dealing with his trauma. He was like, has to deal with knowing those guys around and, and seeing them occasionally.
2: Hmm. But it, it's it, it's interesting that he he wanted to the bill he was he was um, trying to get passed was going to look at gun violence as a public health issue as opposed to like a criminal justice issue. Um, and I wondered why he thought that was the right approach as opposed to say, you know, more police or whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I think Bruce is a brilliant tactician, you know, and he he was in, uh, like, the context of the Missouri legislature is, like, Missouri it, it used to be a really reliable Democratic uh, state, but now has become very conservative, and there's actually a, a Republican supermajority in the House, which means they can do whatever they want. And they don't even need, you know, to pay lip service to the sort of formal rules of the house. So I think for Bruce, he was like thinking about, well, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? You know, and it's, it's, he's smartly, you know, framed the bill in, in such a way that he could garner Republican support for it. And, you know, it passed, uh, the Senate unanimously. Eventually, I forget the vote count in the House, but it passed unanimously. It's like all three branches of government are controlled by the Republicans. But this Democratic uh, candidate from, you know, uh, 4,300 block of Gibson was able to get this bill passed.
2: The effect of his brother's death and the violence in the community, it really seems to have taken a toll on him. And I just wonder how he's doing today.
0: Um, well, you know, like I mentioned earlier, he's, uh, we FaceTimed him yesterday. My daughter and I wanted to, wanted to call him and see uncle Bruce, but he's doing a lot better. That's good. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, at the point when we were finished the film last year, it was like, uh, 170 funerals he'd been to. Oh. And now it's over 200. Um, and you know, I think Bruce just needed to, to move on from electoral politics. He needed to move on from St. Louis, just being, you know, faced with his trauma on a daily basis. Um, And by doing that, he was able to sort of take better control of his life and just take more time to sleep and rest and to work out. So he's actually doing uh, really, really well, um, you know, emotionally.
2: Do you think he's closed the door on electoral, uh, electoral politics for good?
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, like, something uh, we as, like, community, as society, we just need to figure out because there is this crisis in democracy across the world, you know, that's, like, it's evident in the United States, it's evident in Brazil, India, Hmm. but, like, I don't think people in Canada should be in... Uh, denial. They're just like, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, talking about this, like one of the chief exports of Canada right now, cultural exports is fascism. (laughs) You look at at the YouTube personalities, right? Uh It's like there's a number of YouTube personalities, which are, you know, they're fascist. They're embraced across uh, sort of the world. So Hmm. I think we as a, as sort of people who are Democrats, small D Democrats need to have a reckoning so how do we support if somebody except as exceptional as bruce can't you know feel supported and can't get things done um then what hope is there for people who aren't nearly as talented rhetorically or you know tactically as bruce and we need to figure that out there's like systemic change but then there's also like you know just being real about like media and coverage and you know what we do to political candidates. Well,
2: I'll ask you uh before we wrap just uh how you got into filmmaking what what sort of sparked your interest in in doing documentaries.
0: You know, I was so I grew up in Sarnia, Ontario. My parents are immigrants. I uh you know, I always didn't feel like I was part of the the culture I didn't see myself reflected hmm. in the culture, so, you know, you want to like I suppose it's sort of like the guys that founded Hollywood, you know, you like, do you want to see, create your own stories to see yourself included. And, you know, being an outsider gives you some unique lens to sort of observe um, observe society at large. So um, I think that's probably why if I would like psych- psychoanalyze myself, my dad was also, is a huge movie fan and, you know, at a very inappropriate age was like showing us like Hitchcock movies and and stuff. So I think that kind of like came into my veins and, you know, I started to just internalize story and and film and, you know, and then I I always worked in journalism. um, And uh, so I have kind of a foothold in both um, documentary and journalism, but then also in, in fiction storytelling.
2: Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. And uh, it's a great film. I really recommend people see it. Actually, how can they see it?
0: So on January 31st, all of the Oscar nominated shorts are going to be released across the world. And it'll be playing at places like the, the TIFF Lightbox. Um, and then, you know, at some point, AJ Witnesses, which, who owns the rights to uh, the film internationally, including Canada, will, will release the film online.
2: Well, I highly recommend people see it. And, uh, Sammy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And that's the podcast. Thanks to Jane Jankovic and Sammy Khan for coming on the show. We've got another episode dropping later this week with actress and filmmaker Mariam Zuri. She'll be here to talk about her doc, Born in Evan, It looks into her quest to find answers surrounding her birth in a notorious political prison in Iran. If you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs at TVO.org or follow me on Twitter at Colin Ellis81. This episode of On Docs was produced by Matthew Amara and me. Our production support coordinators are Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor. And our executive producer for digital is Kathy Vay. We'll catch you at the next screening.